Anna Lee, we've been doing this podcast for nearly six years. I mean, is it really six years? Because I feel like we were in cryosleep for part of that time. And like we had some AIs that like our uploads were doing it for a couple years. I mean, I think that the virtual versions of us were doing the podcast and that counts, you know? That's, okay, yeah. It's been since 2018. We've been doing it for six years. We're closing in on 150 episodes and it's Damn. like a lot to listen to. That's like, I don't even know how many hours that is. That's a lot of hours. I'm and never like, going to go listen to all of them, but I will make my upload listen to everything. Okay. Over and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People sometimes ask me like, which episodes of Our Opinions Are Correct, they should definitely check out. Like, which are the most important episodes of the podcast? Mm -hmm. The most important are obviously all of the ones where we got to talk about pudding. I mean, people don't realize like how much of a through line pudding really is in this show. Pudding is in the proof. Yeah, yeah. So the point is, we are developing the OOAC canon. There are like certain episodes that are part of the canon of the podcast. And then certain things are like no longer canonical. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there might have been a time five years ago when we expressed some opinions that we later realized are not as correct as we thought they the were. The butterscotch pudding opinion. I know, the butterscotch yeah. pudding opinion. That was terrible. And so, you know, there's there's some things that are more canonical about the podcast, some things that are less. And that makes me wonder, like, why the heck do people love to argue about canon so freaking much? Like, and what does it mean to say that a story is canonical or that it's canonized? Is it a saint? Do we have to like bow to it every time we look at that story? So (laughs) today we're going to talk about the whole idea of canon and why it's such a weird thing to think about. And later in this episode, we'll be talking about tsunamis that happen on inland bodies of water, like lakes or creeks. And we'll be talking to Dr. Agaliki Babarupulu, who's a professor at Tufts University who has been researching the tsunamis triggered by the 2002 Denali earthquake in Seattle. Okay, so you're listening to Our Opinions Are Correct, and I'm Charlie Jean Anders. I'm a science fiction writer. I sometimes write comics. My most recent publication is a trade paperback of a miniseries called New Mutants Lethal Legion. Dun, dun, dun. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. And my forthcoming book coming in June is called Stories Are Weapons, Psychological Warfare and the American Mind. And it is a nonfiction book, but I do talk quite a bit about science fiction in it. So for our Patreon supporters, we'll be doing a mini episode next week where we talk about our favorite stories that will not or should not be considered canon. Like, you know, our favorite fanfic, our favorite weird media tie-in books, or just, you know, stories that were kind of disavowed by the creators later on. And by the way, did you know that this podcast is entirely independent? Yeah, it's funded by you instead of billionaires who are eating weird space acorns that they genetically engineered out of their own DNA. That's that's right. We avoid all of that stuff because you are helping us through Patreon. And if you join our Patreon at any level, whether it's five bucks or 20 bucks, um, you're just helping to make this podcast happen. Plus, you get mini episodes. You get to hang out with us in our Discord channel and hear more of my opinions about pudding. So think about it. All of that could be yours for a few bucks a month. And anything you give goes right back into making our opinions more correct. So find us at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. I got to say, I'm really craving pudding now. All right. Let's start the pudding show. 
Today we're going to be talking about the idea of canon. And, you know, there's actually two meanings to the word canon when it comes to science fiction and fantasy, and I don't like either of them. So the first meaning of canon usually has a the in front of it, like the canon. And it's this idea that there are particular works of science fiction and fantasy that are like essential or seminal that you can't claim to know about the genre unless you've read or seen certain things. And the other use of canon refers to like continuity between mm-hmm. like a long-running or expansive series like which Power Ranger stories really happened <laughs> and like did every single episode of the Star Trek animated series really happen to Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock and you know it's funny when I first started talking about the idea for this episode I thought that I was just talking about canon as in continuity whereas Anna Lee you thought that we were talking about the canon as in essential works and mm-hmm. that made me realize that those two ideas are fundamentally kind of the same thing. Okay, I am prepared to hear your argument here. Why are they the same thing? Yeah, they're both about what counts and what matters, and they're both about attempting to kind of corral and like an ever-expanding list of works into some semblance of order. And, you know, because there's an ever-expanding list of works, like more books are being published all the time, Mm -hmm. there's more Star Trek episodes all the time, this goal becomes harder and harder to achieve. And they ultimately come down to, both versions of canon ultimately come down to controlling something that you cannot control, that nobody can control. And the only purpose for this is really to kind of have a bunch of pointless fights that nobody can ever win. So, okay, first of all, let's talk about the canon. Mm-hmm. Annalie, I'm going to send you a, a quote from a blog post from a few years ago from friend of the pod, John Scalzi. Who is, I would say, part of the canon. Um, so this is what uh, Scalzi writes. As a practical matter, the science fiction canon is already dead. There are at least two generations of adults now and two generations of genre writers who didn't grow up on it and fundamentally don't care about it. Long gone are the days where a kid's first introduction to the genre was a Heinlein or Asimov novel smuggled out of the adult section of the library or bookstore like Samizdat. The kids these days, they got their start reading genre through the YA section. They don't care about the canon. And why should they? What they grew up with was sufficient for what they needed, to be entertained when they became readers and fans, and to be inspired if they became creators or writers. So I think that um, Scalzi is partly right here. Um, I do think that there are many versions of what the canon is and that, you know, we don't have to start every discussion of science fiction anymore by saying like, no, we're not going to be talking about Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov. Thank you very much. Um, but I think now there's a new canon. Um, the canon is evolving, but there's still institutions like Um, you know, like the SF Masterworks series or, you know, American Library editions where certain writers are kind of elevated 
Um, mm-hmm. There's also the system of awards, for example, where certain writers get awards and um, not just and I'm not just talking about like the Hugos and the Nebulas, which are sort of within the science fiction community awards, but like things like um you know, getting like a major literary award, uh, which, you know, some science fiction writers do, Mm -hmm. and I think is kind of, you know, a big deal. Like uh, Octavia Butler got a MacArthur Genius Award. And I think she was the first science fiction writer to get one. I think so. Yeah. And yeah. And so and that was this big moment. Um, So I think we do have a canon, um, or the canon, but it's it's shifting, it's changing. Um, but it's fluid. It's more fluid, and and I think realistically, all canons are actually quite fluid. Um, even if you teach in a literature department, you know that like things that were considered part of the literary canon fifty years ago are now not as much anymore. And of course, there's new authors who've entered, like Toni Morrison. Like nobody would teach an English literature class that dealt with the 20th century and neglect Toni Morrison unless they were you know, fool. <laughs> Very you know, true. But, yeah. Yeah. But, but 50 years ago, of course, or even 30 years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. Yeah. I mean, it's so true what you say about the SF masterworks. It's so true. I'm looking at my shelves. I've got a bunch of those. I've got a bunch of these American Library of America books of like Le Guin specifically. But at the same time, if someone loves science fiction and fantasy and hasn't read Le Guin, I'm not going to give them shit about it. I'm not going to be like, well, you don't really know the genre. I'm just be like, well, you've got a treat in store for you whenever you get around to Le Guin, because obviously she's amazing. But you could also just have read people who were influenced by her. And I think the thing that I like about what Scalzi says here is that every generation finds speculative fiction in its own way and kind of defines its own sense of what the canon is. And like, you know, it's interesting. Scalzi wrote that blog post in like 2020, I think. Mm -hmm. And back then it was like, oh, people are fighting. The kids are finding it through YA. And like, it's already changed since then. Now it's TikTok. Yeah. And now it's like romanticy, Mm -hmm. like books like Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros, which is, I double checked. It's not a YA book. It's actually like marketed as an adult book. Yeah. And Rebecca Yaros was a is a romance writer like, right that's kind of her her jam it's actually a really fun novel i'm reading it right now yeah i know and like so okay annalee you have been a humanities professor in the past and you're you're actually becoming one again and when you think about questions of the canon does this bring back some memories for you <laughs> yes <laughs> it brings back a lot of traumatic memories from the 1990s when there was this moment kind of like today in the United States where there were a lot of conservative attacks on higher education and a lot of hand-wringing over the fact that, you know, students were reading Black authors instead of reading, like, important white men from 2,000 years ago, um, among other things. Um, And it, it really was like a kind of moral panic over what happens when the old literary canon often the canon that was codified like in the early 20th century. So it was like a lot of things like Greek and Roman works um, and European writing. Um, what happens when that goes away? Like, does that mean that suddenly now nobody's educated and and nobody really, uh, you know, has critical thinking skills? But luckily there were some really um, amazing pieces of writing and thought that came out of that period inspired partly by a scholar named Stuart Hall, um, a British scholar of cultural studies. Um, He founded what's called the Birmingham School. And he was arguing, along with a lot of other critics, that 
um, you know, we can apply critical thinking skills and and the kind of readerly analysis um, to almost anything in pop culture. He famously wrote a series of essays about the astrology column in um, a local publication. And of course, he also wrote about literature. He wrote about um, his own experiences as a uh, Caribbean British guy dealing with like the can the British canon, but also coming from um, a colonized place. And so he was really interested in this idea that you can't really have a canon because in order to really understand your culture, you have to appreciate the fact that people are participating in that culture from many different places, from many different positions. And also that like what audiences love to watch or read is important to understand. Like, so we should read Fourth Wing as well as reading, you know, uh, Dickens, you know, like, why don't we read Rebecca Yaros right alongside Charles Dickens and kind of figure out how these stories um, say something about us as humans? Yeah, and I did a little research about this, and it seems like the first idea of like codifying a literary canon gets its most basic expressions in like the mid 18th century. And there's a scholarly paper that we can link to in the show notes about that. Um, people in the mid 18th century were really concerned with the question of like, which authors were going to be quoted by Star Trek villains? Because like they, they basically <laughs> chose like Shakespeare and Milton were like the two authors. They were like, wow. these are like the authors everybody has to read. And of course, you know, you get to the Star Trek and like, that's what Khan and like that Klingon, various Klingons love to quote Shakespeare and Milton as well. And like, you know, so the, that was the thing that they were really worried about in the 18th century. But also Melville, Also Melville. Right? They, they didn't have Melville yet in the mid 18th century, but yes, that's true that Melville also I know, but there. that's funny that they were like, that was how they broke canon. They were like, oh, we're going to let like one American mm -hmm. white guy be part of Part of canon. the Star Trek villain canon. Like, I, I feel like there is, that is yeah. an important criteria. Like, have has this author been quoted by oh, a Klingon general Melville. or by like Khan? Um, but yeah, so but I think that the canon first becomes like politicized and like a thing that we like yell about uh, in the 1960s when you know, which is the start of people starting to champion works by marginalized creators, mm -hmm. and that's when the idea of the canon gets set in stone. And to quote Jean Luc Picard, "To oppose something is to maintain it." Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wonder if, um, and I, I would just add that Stuart Hall starts his career in the 1960s, so that he's kind of part of this revisionist um, view. And I. I think there might be something to the idea that in speculative fiction, we're kind of going through that same process of people are challenging the canon and somehow the challenge to the canon is what's solidifying the canon. Yes. And so it's like we only know what the bad old canon was because it's what a lot of people are reacting against. Mm -hmm. I think that's definitely true. Right, so, okay, so let's pivot to the other meaning of canon, which is like canonicity and the question of like, which stories really happened. <laughs> yes. Um, why is that a big deal? And when when does that kind of become one of the things that we talk about with canon? I mean, I think it becomes a big deal because you have these universes that have been going so long yeah. that there's no way that everything could have possibly happened. Like <laughs> if every single, you know, Batman story really happened, Batman would just be like a wreck. There's no way that Batman could like, there's no way you could fit that many events into one person's life. He'd also be like a hundred years yeah, old. Yeah, right? exactly. Like there's just at a certain point, there's so many things that have supposedly happened to one person mm -hmm. that it's just impossible. And like, so you have to kind of pick and choose and like, 
it's interesting because you have this thing in like the, I think it's the 1960s, it's the Silver Age, basically, where DC Comics starts publishing things that they call an imaginary story, which is like where, like, okay, Superman and Batman both settle down and have kids, and then it's like about Superman and Batman's kids going off and having adventures, and it's like, they always say at the start of every one of these stories, this didn't really happen. This is an imaginary uh-huh. story about Superman and Batman. And like Alan Moore, <laughs> the famous comics writer, thought this was hilarious. And so at one point in the, I mean, in the 80s, is. he writes a Superman comic and he's like, this is an imaginary story, but aren't they all? Meaning, yeah, every single story about Superman is imaginary. It's not like there's some that like, I love that, are though. documented <laughs> with like hard evidence in the historical record. And it's just like, but this idea that, like, well, certain stories, and then DC later has, like, a thing called Elseworlds, where it's like, well, Batman became a vampire, but that didn't mm-hmm. really happen in real life. In real life, Batman isn't a vampire. And it's like, again, like... Okay, good to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just like, you know, because people <laughs> do care about, like, you don't want to pick up a Batman comic and be like, so wait, is he still a vampire now? Like, you know, like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, but this idea that, like, everything ought to count, or you should say that it doesn't count, gets kind of really thorny after a while. And people just love to argue about this stuff because fans love to argue in general. It's also what leads to things like the scandal over black elves in uh, Lord of the Rings, right? Because that's not how it really happened. And it leads to people making like bizarre claims as if there's some kind of real history behind it. Um, which they would be wrong about if they were talking about actual medieval history. There were lots and lots of people intermixing all over the place. Um, There were plenty of medieval people of color, yeah. Yeah, and also like people coming from the Americas to places and coming from Africa and coming from Asia into Europe and out of Europe. And anyway, people were intertwingling for a long, long time. Yeah, so it's really interesting because what do you do if you want to trim out a piece of the story that now feels like it isn't culturally relevant anymore or that's culturally problematic like that's a whole other question that i think fans deal with a lot in fanfic like you see a lot of fanfic where people are like can we just do can we just do star wars like without all of the offensive racial stereotypes in it or there's the phantom edit where jar jar binks is gone so we don't have to deal with the horror of that character um so that's a that's another question and also i've seen people do fanfic about narratives that they actually don't really like the original narrative but they do like one or two of the characters and they kind of rescue those characters and place them in new contexts so i think that's another another way we play with the canon and it's interesting to think about fanfic as like a safety valve for this whole canon question because it's like a way of just sidestepping it entirely and being like much like those imaginary stories where batman becomes a vampire or has like kids who are like bat kids you know it's like yeah these are you know these are definitely not part of the canon but that frees us up it frees us from this cage that we've become trapped in and that's the thing that really is like at a certain point canon does become like a cage and you know coming back to the notion that both ideas of canon are kind of the same thing that like when we argue about like is this like part of the canon and did this really happen? They both really come down to value judgments. Like when people want a story to not be canon, like when people want a story to have not happened, it's usually because they think that story sucks. They think that was a bad story. They think it ruined some aspect of the narrative and they just want it gone Mm -hmm. to, to preserve what they like about the narrative. And similarly, 
when, you know, when there's a story that people think is like really awesome, they want it to really count. And they also want it to be something that we hold up as being essential and central and important. And so it's like about kind of sorting stories into piles of like discard, keep, and then the ones that are just like the extra special stories that we love the most, which I think is a very fanish impulse of like wanting to like you know, categorize and sort and stuff. But it also just, it becomes very elitist. It becomes very, like, draconian and, like, I'm going to impose my framework on everybody else of, like, which stories should be loved and which stories should count. And, like, Mm -hmm. you know, there are people out there for whom the story you hate the most is their favorite story, and that's just life, you know? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you're what you're saying is that it's gatekeeping basically. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's kind of, it's and it's it's vibe gatekeeping because part of what we like about these stories unless there's some sort of political or other social issue that we're trying to grapple with, it's like I just like this character. Yeah. You know, like like for me, like when I watch Deep Space 9, like I would love just like nothing but Odo fanfic. Yeah. And I think there's other people who might not feel that way about Odo. You know what I mean? Like those people are fools. Odo might be an acquired taste. I don't know. They are fools. Odo is the best. <laughs> and he did have a great romance arc, which felt a little bit in a way like it was fan fiction just for me. I did love um, that. That got inserted into the story. Yeah, I mean, I think that basically what we have to do is, A, kind of recognize that everybody gets their own personal canon and that, like, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that that's part of the beauty of fandom is that, like, I get to love what I love. You get to love what you want, love. If I want to say, yeah, Batman was a vampire for five years and, like, every time I read a Batman story, I'm, like, thinking about how he used to be a vampire and how hard that must be for him (laughs) to, like, no longer be a vampire. and like in recovery from, from vampiredom. And I'm allowed to think that. And that's you can't stop me from thinking that. But also, like, I think that for this whole question of which stories count, like, for these long, long, long running things, you just have to keep it kind of simple. And, like, you know, all you should need to know about Wonder Woman is she's an Amazon. She won a contest. She left home. She's out doing awesome stuff now. And, like, you don't need to know whether or not she became a goddess at one point or if she beheaded a dude or whether all this other stuff happened Mm -hmm. that's just gravy that's just like icing on the pudding yeah i don't think that most people who pick up a comic book or a book or start watching a show care at all about that stuff yeah this is really just the diehard fans fanning out about stuff which i love fandom but sometimes it does get a little gatekeepery and a little bit like a little draconian and i feel like you know, the, the thing that really unites both versions of the idea of canon is that it's about creating an inner circle of the serious aficionados yeah. who know more about this than the average person. And it's just a little bit, you know, hostile to newcomers. And it definitely can be used for gatekeeping. And, you know, speaking of things that can create huge barriers and possibly, you know, make people feel unwelcome, when we come back from our break, we're going to talk about tsunamis that happen in inland bodies like lakes and rivers and, like, why those things can be so intense and so destructive. We're incredibly lucky to be joined by Dr. Agaliki Babarapulu, an assistant research professor at the USC Tsunami Research Center. Uh, she's researched tsunamis triggered by the 2002 Denali earthquake in Lake Union, Seattle. And Dr. Babarapulu also researched the conditions of the Seattle basin that cause large waves in Lake Union and surrounding bodies of water during earthquakes. Um, thank you. Welcome to the show, Dr. Babarapulu. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's always great. Uh, to talk about my work. Yeah, it's so exciting. So, you know, I hadn't known until just now that 
tsunamis can happen in like lakes and other inland bodies of water. How does that happen? Is it is it usually due to earthquakes or are there other reasons it can happen? So there's two different things that you are touching upon here. One is what is causing those waves and the other is where they happen. Obviously, because they're water waves, they have to happen in uh, obviously a water basin, mm -hmm. whether it's open or it's um, partially closed or it's enclosed, it's inland. Um, it has nothing to do with what is causing it. So it can be caused by similar uh, causes, whether it's inland or it's actually in, in the open waters. So what are some of those causes? Like uh, Charlie mentioned earthquake. I think we're familiar with a lot of uh, earthquake-caused tsunamis, but are there other things that um, can cause a tsunami that we might not be thinking of? Yeah, so the earthquake-generated tsunamis are definitely the most common ones, but you do have landslides. Those are also fairly common, and sometimes you can have them concurrently. Mm. Oh. So sometimes it's kind of hard because you have an earthquake and you do have a tsunami and maybe an earthquake that is not supposed to cause a very large tsunami, and you do get this because you do have landslides happening at the same time. Now, landslides can happen also without an earthquake happening. Um, so they can happen from all sorts of reasons. You can have subaerial, uh, submarine landslides. So par part of the landslide can happen on um, the ground, and part of it can can happen uh, under the water. You can have also things like, let's say, a glacier uh, collapsing oh, wow. into water, and you can cause those waves. Um, you can have meteorological-induced tsunamis, the so-called meteo tsunamis. So you can have a weather-caused tsunami, like just the wind gets so rough? Yes, you have the so-called meteo tsunamis. This is not uh, one that I actually particularly studies, but yes, you can have meteorological. So anything that would displace vertically the water basically could would could cause tsunamis. You can have also volcanic eruptions. Mm. Oh, wow. Totally. That makes sense. Yeah. So a lot of people probably, like, if you live on the coast, you kind of accept that, yeah, there might be, like, some pretty damaging waves, and that's a thing you, that's a risk you take if you live on the coast, but how much damage can people, you know, do people have to worry about if they live, like, alongside of, like, a lake or other inland body of water? Like, how damaging can these events get? Uh, this is actually a great question. I mean, theoretically and practically, uh, the same ways that tsunamis cause damage when you're in the open waters can happen also inland. Uh, but uh, I looked at a paper that was actually published uh, recently in 2019 and was based on data that resides with the National uh, Geophysical Data Center, NAIC. It's part of NOAA. Mm -hmm. Uh, the National Oceani Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It's the Global Tsunami Historical Database. And they were summarizing some basic statistics about uh, tsunamis in the last 25 years. Just to give you a bit of, uh, of an idea, between 1992 and 2016, there were 290 tsunamis that happened in, the, in those 25 years um, six were in rivers and lakes. That can give you a little bit of an idea that is not as common. Mm -hmm. You can kind of probably uh, logically, if you think about how big the oceans are and the different big seas, probably you would expect having so many different sources that can generate tsunamis that that probably is something you would expect. Uh, the damage that can happen from tsunamis, 
can be structural damage if you have facilities, uh, buildings, um, through flooding, uh, through scouring. Uh, you can have uh, basically alteration of the topography. You can have large erosion. Mm-hmm. Um, and also you can have generation of currents mm-hmm. around ports. So you've studied the Denali uh, earthquake that kind of hit the Seattle area, but it also caused waves elsewhere. Can you tell tell us what the Denali earthquake was and kind of where we felt its effects in bodies of water? So uh, basically what happens is we have an earthquake in Alaska. The same thing actually happened in Alaska 1964. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Denali earthquake was the inspiration for my PhD work. So what happened is there is an earthquake and there is obviously a rapture at a fault. And then you get waves. So the energy is propagating outside of the source and it travels through uh, the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, high frequencies dissipate quickly and then the long period waves travel large distances. Mm -hmm. So these are the waves that you might cause swaying of um, hanging things, Uh uh, like dizziness, they might cause dizziness, Mm -hmm. and you might feel something like this and not knowing why you felt it. Now, these long period waves caused uh, damage in houseboats in Lake Union uh, by basically causing water waves in the lake. And the theory was behind this that if you think that a lake is almost like a glass or cup that holds like a liquid Mm -hmm. that is embedded, imagine the uh, ground moving with the lake and then those waves are caused. So is it almost like the, the long wave of the earthquake is propagated into the water? So there's different theories about how these waves are generated. For me, because Lake Union is also fairly small, yeah. the theory was that it's almost it's the same as having a water tank on top of a shaking table. Oh, so basically the ground, okay. the lake is moving with the ground, uh-huh. and then you have these waves um, uh, generated. And this basically caused the damage in the houseboats in sewer and water lines because obviously there was stretching of these lines and those broke. Mm-hmm. So we collected uh, this information uh, at the beginning of my PhD studies, and we did some also uh, analysis of uh, seismic records from uh, accelerometer uh, network in Seattle, mm-hmm. and we um, kind of confirmed earlier findings uh, of another great researcher from the USGS that the presence of thick sediments that are in the general Seattle region and in um, uh, Washington state, amplify those motions. And those, um, we found that the water waves were actually coinciding with areas of thick sediments that amplify certain uh, waves. So sediment is just kind of like a loose, sandy soil instead of rock. Yes, and in in Seattle, we have a lot of these unconsolidated sediments that are not well compacted because of glaciers being present 20,000 years ago that melted and left all this behind. It's all the junk that the the glaciers picked up as they moved around, so they were just pushing a bunch of junk. Yes. And and they, like, amplify the waves? They amplify the earthquakes or they conduct the earthquakes? So the uh, these long period waves that I was looking at that traveled to Seattle from, from Alaska uh, were amplified at uh, at the range, if I remember correctly, is like 0.02 to 0.4 hertz. Oh. So you can, uh, 
And these were, um, we hypothesized that these are, these frequencies are the ones that are actually influenced the presence of the, of the water waves that we saw. Um, and um, there was some similar hypothesis being made for um, the Alaska 1964. Um, observations from that uh, earthquake were also collected by the United States Geological Survey along the, the path that the seismic waves travel. And so we were able with some, you know, observation collections and then seismic analysis to be able to kind of connect the two and say, we find these observations at the same locations where we have amplification of long period waves, seismic mm. waves. And these are also coinciding with very, very thick sediments, more than two kilometers. And we think these are connected. So basically, you get an earthquake in Alaska, the waves are propagating out, and then they hit these thick, sandy sediments, and that makes the earthquake more intense, basically. Yeah, the motion, yes. And then it hits Lake Union, and so the motion has been amplified, it gets to Lake Union, and it's basically Lake Union is this cup that's stuck inside the shaking rock and sediment. And of course, Lake Union has, because of its shape, also has a characteristic ways that it wants to resonate, right? Like if we have a taller building, shoulder building, the same thing with the lakes. So we, I did some numerical modeling to see if I'm shaking this lake with the particular type of, you know, um, ground motion, what happens? Mm-hmm. Um, so I did a little bit of that. This was the first time that a very complex shaped lake uh, was done. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some... Um, we also had some hypothesis that because uh, there is some in- human intervention in the lake and their vertical walls, maybe that might have also played a role in the sense that they act a little bit like, um, how do they call this, like wave generators? Yeah, yeah. They're, they use paddles in, in wave generators. Yes, yeah. yes. So they're, because the walls are so vertical, they're like the water is like splashing against it really hard and then sloshing back really hard. Is that the idea? <laughs> Yeah, so this is some stuff that we um, made assumptions for. Of course, there could be bias that, you know, observations are only where people submitted things. Uh, the, the bad thing is we don't have water wave collections, uh, observations uh, from the lake. So we we only could work with, you know, damage in these locations, mm-hmm. observations here, there, and stuff like that. How big did the, how, how big did the waves get? Were they quite extraordinary? That's, that's actually what we don't know. We actually don't have measurements of those waves. We only know that the the damage, and and so we are assuming the you know the bigger the waves, the bigger the damage because obviously the houseboats have a range of motion, um, and so these are the kind of the difficult thing about this kind of waves, is that we don't really have a nice set of uh, records. I have been um, very um, adamant at collecting any kind of observation of waves like this, and I have collected recently some from international location, uh, but they're always like very difficult to collect. Uh, you have it's it's data that can be lost very easily. I feel I don't want to say proud, but I I want to say very much like representing these standing waves as massively. Um, 
studied them because it is not a very fashionable topic and so people haven't been paying as much attention and every time somebody gets excited about this topic or wants to talk about this I really want to jump in and talk <laughs> about them. No, it's super exciting. So, you know, part of what's fascinating about inland tsunamis is that you can get huge amounts of like destruction or huge amounts huge waves from tiny tiny bodies of water. Like you know, you think of like the ocean, of course, it's going to cause a huge wave. But like I was reading up on this, uh, you know, tsunami that happened in late 2020 at Jack Elliott Creek in British Columbia, Canada. And I was, you look at the map, Jack Elliott Creek is a tiny, tiny, it's a creek. It's a tiny little, like, basically like a stream. But you have a landslide in late 2020 that causes a tsunami that's 100 meters tall, that causes massive habitat destruction huge amounts of damage. It's like felt as far away as Australia. Like how can such a tiny body of water produce such a huge wave? Definitely, there is a lot of things that actually play a role in the damage that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the local topographic and pathometric characteristics, you know, definitely have an effect like in focusing. Like a lot of times you will see large variability in nearby areas. Like one area will have Uh, very large, um, you know, waves and then nearby you don't have or you might have damage in some area and this is definitely a result of focusing. Uh, And the focusing focusing can happen fairly close to the coastline that it affects or it can happen a little bit further onshore within the continental self if you have things that actually uh, send the energy towards the particular location. One One location that seems to be a tsunami magnet, and you may have seen this in the literature, it's actually in Northern California in Crescent City. Oh! The reason it's a magnet is because of features uh, that are in the bathymetry of the Pacific Ocean uh, west of Crescent City, obviously in, in the deeper waters. Uh, but also it depends on where the tsunami initiates. If it is created, let's say, in Japan, further north, further south, there is a lot of islands, island arcs, uh, that are standing in the wave, and they send waves, either diffract waves, either reflect waves, uh, or refract waves. And this is the reason you get a train of waves, and you might get larger waves that are coming later. So there's a lot of things that uh, play a role. Just to clarify, bathymetry is the kind of topology of the the land underneath the water. Yes, you can say it's the morphology or the details of the bottom of the ocean. It's definitely not flat. It is. It does not look like a, uh, like a swimming pool, obviously. Uh, if you look at um, the NOAA uh, animations of famous recent or historical tsunamis, it does uh, show very prominently the effect of this, of the presence of the islands and all these sort of, um, I don't want to say, I'm not sure if I should say asymmetries or all these obstacles, let's say, mm-hmm. that are in the uh, ocean basin. So... I listened to this and it it's a little bit um, scary, like to think <laughs> that, you know, there could be, um, you know, some small body of water could produce a giant wave or unbeknownst to me, I could be living near like a really dangerous bathymetry under the water that like would really focus a wave. So I'm wondering, are there 
Um, early warning systems? Are there ways that we can forecast when a tsunami might be about to hit so that people are able to evacuate? How does that work? Yes, there is There is uh, tsunami forecasting in place and there is different organizations that are involved in this. The tsunami warning centers obviously are the ones that are involved in observing the first signs and the measurements that are being made. If let's say there is an earthquake, there is... Um, Messages that are sent out uh, by the National uh, Weather Service. There is the um, tsunami list that I also uh, get messages from and other scientists get from and the Tsunami Warning Center sent messages to. Uh, that is a, a partnership, I believe, from UNESCO and some other organizations. What's the tsunami list? Is that like an email list that I can subscribe to or...? Um, you may be able to subscribe to it's called ITIC. Mm-hmm. I think you can find it from if you do Google search. Okay. Tsunami uh, warning messages. Those messages also appear on a website. Uh, we always like look at them because the first messages that come up if there is a, let's say a submarine earthquake, they always send messages there and they say some brief uh, description of the area where the earthquake has happened and if it is common to expect um, tsunamis from that uh, region with that magnitude, et cetera, et cetera. Are there any inland lakes that that might be particularly pl- prone to tsunamis? Like if, if someone's living uh, near like Lake Erie or Lake Michigan, should they be more aware of this kind of stuff? Like the great, what we call the Great Lakes, the inland seas? Yeah, so, for example, um, uh, Lake Washington is um, on top of a fault line. So if if you have, um, you know, lakes that are on top of faults that could potentially displace the water, then you might get something like this. Also, if you have, let's say, unconsolidated sediments, like we have in the... There is an area which um, has uh, landslides and and it's prone to landslides from uh, also precipitation because the sediments are loose, mm. then um, you you definitely can have such waves. And so I think historically there should be uh, documentation of this. Yeah. So it sounds like the, 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 the things that people should be thinking about, though, are do you live near a lake that's near a known fault line, but also do you live near like an area that has these huge sedimentary deposits mm-hmm. and that that's something, I mean, cause I think that's something that people don't think about when they're buying a house or moving to a place. They're not like, how, how deep is the sedimentary deposit here? You know, they're not, <laughs> that's not like something that comes up as, as we try to plan our future safety. Uh, so I think when somebody, let's say buys a house, I believe there is some kind of, report that I think they can get that shows basically um, any kind of relevant geology and what kind of threat they might have, let's say, from, uh, you know, landslides or things like that. Um, And so I think that is definitely good to look at. On the other hand, I feel that if you live in an area, it's always good to be informed about, you know, the characteristics. I think it's part of the history of your area. And I always find it that it is connecting us to the area we live in. Mm-hmm. I particularly uh, like studying historical uh, earthquakes myself. And so I always say I like to go back to my roots and look at that because I think it's intertwined with the area that you live in. And I think it is very exciting to know uh, uh, some stuff. For example, Seattle 
anything, the geology and everything that you see around is a result of some processes. Mm -hmm. I think it's very, it's, um, it, it is exciting to know about all this and know a little bit about, you know, your city or the general region. And I think that would protect you also from um, specific threats. Mm -hmm. Yes. So it is good to know about emergency plans and knowing, um, you know, the local or your state emergency management reports and pages familiarize yourself. I think it's a good it's a good thing to do. For sure. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Babarapulo. Uh, can you tell people where to find you on the internet? Find your work? Yes. So people can actually find me. I work currently uh, on the East Coast. I am at Tufts University in Boston. I split most of my time is, um, is spent teaching students, but also I do research. I do public outreach and I actually do work and collaborate with uh, uh, high school students as well. So I encourage people to write to me emails if they're interested in finding more and I can send them materials about my work. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. Yay. And, you know, if you just stumbled on us, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the podcast, please leave a review and, like, just say nice things about us because it really helps. And, you know, you can find us on Mastodon at ouropinions.wandering.shop, on Instagram at ouropinionsarecorrect, and we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct and we would love your support thanks so much to our incredible heroic just wonderful badass producer Naya Harmon thanks also to Chris Palmer and Katya Lopez Nichols for our music and thanks again to you for listening and you know we'll be back in two weeks with another episode but if you're on our Patreon you get a mini episode next week plus we'll be seeing you on Discord bye, bye. bye. Wow, 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 wow,